0: We will be republishing some episodes from our archives as we have moved to a new platform. Our old platform limited us to the 500 most current episodes, and there was just too much good stuff from our past guests to leave off our feet. Today's episode is a prime example of that. This podcast with Matt Drankall is from 2019 after he had joined the Army staff as the Titans coach. He's been named the co-offensive coordinator and offensive line coach in 2023, and we are excited to see the style that he brings to the Army offense because he's not your traditional option guy. The tight front has gained popularity across all levels of football, and in today's episode, Coach Drinkall shares a plan for defeating it. There are a ton of takeaways from this one, so get your pen and notebook ready to capture some of these great ideas. Coach Drinkall did share a PowerPoint that went along with this one, and we will make that available at coachandcoordinator.com. He also has a playlist that we will publish. Coach Drinkall always delivers great information on the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. What you see on tape is a direct reflection of what you teach and how you teach. Video is important, but if you don't teach well, you're not going to like what you see on your video. First Down Playbook has been helping coaches teach better for 13 years. It allows you to present installs, playbooks, and practice cards in half the time with NFL quality. to receive a $100 discount off the normal $700 first down playbook team membership price. Links and the phone number are in the show notes. Welcome to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast and another episode in our All In on Offense series. Today we're going to focus on defeating the tight front and joining me on the podcast is a repeat performer, a guy I love to talk ball with, now at Army as an offensive assistant, Coach Matt Drankel. Matt, it's great to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me, Keith.
0: So, uh, you know, when we we put this out on Twitter that we were going to be doing this one, you know, we were told uh, it's going to be a short podcast. So uh, last words as we conclude. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no kidding.
0: Uh, well, with anything. With, with any offense, there's a, always a, an answer with a defense and uh, vice versa. So we get to have the chalk today as we talk about some ideas on how to defeat the tight front so let's start with this you know your experiences with the tight front when you started started to see I guess more use of it I noticed you know as we were as I was preparing for this that uh, more and more schools started to use that tight front against us and as I mentioned to you before I started to feel like we became a little bit more gap scheme heavy and and had some answers for, uh, what we wanted to do against this defense. But for you, when, when did you have to start to face this and think about what you were going to do against a tight front?
1: It really came along about, uh, where I noticed it was, a you know, kind of a whole sweeping prevalence somewhere between, depending on what region you're in about four or five seasons ago. And it's really manifested into its own beast over the last three seasons for sure. Um, so I think it's, uh, you know i think one of the most important things to understand when attacking it is how it got to where it is and how it evolved and a little bit of the history of it so it's really similar it's eerily similar to back in the 80s with the old bear front that buddy ryan had get going yeah. that really uh, forced teams it's really weird because it's a it's a, the inverse of what happened then back then it was you know the bear front that buddy ryan started running that 46 stuff was the you know, you know, implemented a stop all two back teams and it forced you to go one back to really be able to move the ball schematically against it. And what's happening now with the tight front is the exact opposite has happened. It, it really came into it manifested to stop one back teams. And now you're seeing a lot more teams attach a tight end or a second back to really be able to have a, a lot of success attacking it. So it's forcing you to do the exact opposite, which is kind of how the schematic football pieces of it always go, you know, it ebbs and flows and happens in waves and trends. So I think understanding the, the what caused it to start and what it's trying to do is the most important part of attacking it.
0: Yeah. Understanding how that pendulum swings in football is, is pretty interesting. And I know back in his uh, series of, of pamphlets that he put out Homer Smith did one just on the history of football. And I want to say that came out sometime he put it out in the nineties and he just discussed in the history of football, why certain things came into vogue, like, you know, a certain defense or uh, a certain offense or formation. And you just see those answer answers start to go back and forth. And so we, we are right now in this period where defensively everybody wants to learn all they can about the tight front. And a lot of teams are playing, uh, the quarters behind it and on the offensive side of the ball, everybody's asking, well, what, what can we do from a, a spread environment to beat this? So um, just how the game works, you know, it's going to happen again from here. I'm sure as somebody figures out ways to overcome the tight front, we're going to get into some other f- things. But I think the other interesting thing though, is you don't see this used a lot at the NFL level. We saw it a little bit. Uh, I want to say somebody used it against the Ravens towards the end of the year uh, to stop their running game a little bit but when you think about it you're not going to take some of those edge rushers who are just creatures and and put them inside you still want those guys to be able to attack so I think a lot of that is personnel driven at that level.
1: Absolutely the personnel structure between a college 30 and an NFL 30 couldn't possibly be more different you know you really in the NFL you have a true nose 2D tackles and 2D ends it's almost like if you, I think it's probably more accurate if you refer to an NFL 30 as a 50, and a college defense is a three-four based on the personnel. So, um, I think that's you know those two are, and it's no different offensively. They're you know what they're defending is completely different because the NFL game is as drastically different from college as you could possibly get.
0: I think what I've seen with this front is the teams that start to use this and, and get into it a little bit and make that transition start to use it more. On early downs because of the lack of the edge rusher, at least right there in the box. So you, with the teams who've used it, they've started to do that maybe a little bit more first down, second down, and if it gets into a third and long situation, you might see them go back into their four-two-five or something like that. I think one of the biggest things when you look at why this was created, though, was to to start to take the conflict. Defender out with so many teams going to the RPO, looking to attack uh, an open B gap that uh, pr- presents itself in in the four two five, and put a put a linebacker in conflict because he has to defend that gap as well as be able to get under some passes on level two. This was an answer for that, and and the other part of it though is also to try to get everything to spill, get guys running sideways, put these faster defenders out there on the edges and have them run them down for no gain
1: yeah you know that's the other part too is just you mentioned earlier just one of the things that's fascinating about uh, the sport of football right now is, is the tie to technology where you know once somebody does something that starts to work it can get picked up and stolen so much faster now than it used to be you know the information is so accessible so you're seeing people do that but yeah the uh the other thing, too, is, you know, I, I think if you can kind of, it's just tough because it's a seven-man box all, every snap. Um, you're seeing, you know, very rarely do I see people just, you know, uh, sit and live and die with just this, the static front. You know, if you, they add a fourth guy in, it's really just a line stunt with somebody else, and they can tag it. So you get a ton of variety out of it, and uh, there, there's absolutely some, some – you know, critical things to, to make sure you're doing against it. But there's also some things that you got to make sure you don't do against it because you're going to be beating your head against the wall.
0: Yeah, I know anytime we saw an odd front, it was a little bit of a game to figure out how they were going to bring those pressures and essentially get in, get into uh, on the move a four-man front, right, to, to cover up some of those gaps right away. Uh, and you can find that, I think, when you study a team you'll start to see like okay this is the guy they favor moving this guy rarely moves except to to change it up every now and then to throw off a key but you will start to especially as uh, you know you get into your level and in that difference in personnel uh whether that's the higher level the lower levels like personnel is going to really drive this as to who they really want to put there that there'll be somebody they like much more coming down and filling that gap and letting another guy read and and play football. So I think, you know, as we get into this, we'll, we'll talk about all those different things that we might look at as we game plan this and as we put together a a package to attack it. But let's start with exactly that. Let's start with taking a look at and finding uh some of the keys in somebody's tight front. What are the things you look at when when you see that front? Because I think you would agree with me it, it doesn't end with okay, here's what they play. Move on and and let's start attacking that front. <laughs>
1: exactly uh well the biggest thing that kind of dumped gas on the fire to me is the 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 expansion of the rpo system so again i'm going back to like what forced this thing to start uh and really rpos were kind of a i think it's a uh, it's going to start to have a lot of subcategories and right now there's pretty much two so offenses are using rpos really two kind there's two different kinds and two different worlds i should say uh one is you know it's on a bill you know tagged or built-in perimeter screens that are an extension of your outside run game that are pretty much dictated pre-snap if the ball's going to go out there. The other ones are down the field uh, isolating and conflicting the defender that happens as a post-snap read. So as a result, because there's a lot of offenses that do either or and some do both, defenses had to figure out a way to really start defending all of it and kind of like, you know, putting a lasso around all of it. So that was a a big reason from a personnel standpoint about getting those people on the field. And then the other piece that forced the the D ends into four eyes and then being able to have a lot of movement in the front. And then, uh, you know, those guys being able to backdoor uh, run fits with those inside backers was most people are one back and they're, and they're gun. So I think right now, if you're, if your gun and one back, that is really like if you think about the 1990s or 80s and basically every time before now, when people would install their defense their day one, they're drawn up versus 21 pro personnel, you know, pro formation, 21 personnel, and that was it. Now everybody's drawn it up versus 10, 2x2, 3 by one and really starting their day one install is that. So once those DMs kicked into the b gap, and protected those inside backers, from angles and then on top of that then they started teaching the you know the 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 fallback technique where the d-line can move with the o-line the backers make them right there becomes a lot of things that are uh, traditional one-back gun teams that make running the ball out of that i mean i don't want to say hard i want to say impossible Mm -hmm. um it's a lot of it's not very structurally sound uh and you can make life very difficult on yourself so I think you know the biggest thing is understanding that the defense was invented and evolved to where it is to stop that exact thing. So if your plan is to line up, like that's what i was saying, is you got to make sure you avoid the, you know, not play into the strengths of the defense schematically. You know, they spend all their time and design stopping gun, one back run game. So when I play that defense, I do very, very. I, I don't do any. What would be classified as 10 personnel, two by two, three by one and run the ball ever. I don't ever, ever, ever do that um, unless I'm going to run the quarterback to plus one of them uh, along those lines. So I think it's about streamlining your call sheet and your and your game plan during the course of the week to get you into maybe a handful of really, really good looks with really good angles and things that they aren't built Either personnel-wise or schematically to defend. But if you're, if your plan is to just line up in one back and in the gun and run the ball against it, you're in for a long afternoon.
0: Definitely. So as you start to look at that, Matt, and you start to put that menu together, um, what things are you going to start to take into account as you evaluate the front and in the personnel that you're facing? Because I think that's important as well. There's going to be certain guys you want to attack certain ways, but in general, where's the starting point for here's our menu and this is what we want to do to attack these guys?
1: So, uh, remind me if I forget to talk about this later, but I really go into it with two kind of waves of attack. And one is the the first one that I'm going to talk about is the game planning, um, the prep for the game. And the second part is once I get in the game. So, in the game plan leading up, what I did in my offense and what I wanted to run and uh, you know, when I say my offense, I'm saying a, a traditional offense, not what we run here at army, cause it's a whole different beast, but the, uh, you know, a traditional offense, whether you're pro spread, just, you know, the traditional non-option offense. So in the game plan, what I wanted to do was live in two run families. Okay. I, I didn't want to have to add new plays. I wanted to make teeny tiny tweaks to the stuff that we already run and we're already good at. That's a good fit for us and what they don't want to have to defend. So I lived in inside zone and gap game. Now I'll talk about the gap game first. The gap game is a three, I think if you can attack it with a three play series, you're going to get a ton of mileage out of it. So the three plays would be power counter or F counter, however you want to call it and counter tray. So you're going to, you know, if you think about the, the two guys you're borrowing to kick out and to pull up would be the fullback and the guard on power, the guard then the fullback on counter, and guard and tackle on counter tray. Now the caveat is is that you only run it to a three man surface, meaning a guard, a tackle, and an extra body. It might be a heavy tackle, it might be a soft tight end or a hard tight end. However you want to do it, but by doing that you build in the front side combo of the third and second man outside in is going to work that D end all the way to the backside inside backer, okay? So out of that three-play series, you end up with really the same scheme where you've got that frontside tray block that carries the D end of the backside backer. Your playside guard and tackle get a block back or down, however you want to call it, on the nose and the backside end or B gap threat. And then what that leaves you is the place, the outside backer and the inside backer for the way that you're running the ball. So again, that's for your wham block or your, your, your kick out block and your puller. So if you do that, if you get unparalleled angles on the front side double teams that are working at a negative angle all the way back as far as you can work it. That's really, really tough. Plus it gives you, the, the and that, that comes into play when people want to backdoor your uh, your run fits. It's really, really difficult. It's a great answer to a lot of different movement um and your double team is going to stay on those suckers for a month and your your down blocks are really really simplistic blocks so then as a result you can run power, counter counter tray all the exact same way which then as a play caller it allows you to window dress the hell out of it and you know use motions or shifts or tackle over and unbalanced all different kinds of ways to end up running the same play. so i'm a big believer in as a coordinator on offense you got to carry volume in one of two spots, pre snap or post snap. Okay, I think if you don't carry any volume, you're really easy to defend. I think if you carry a bunch of volume before the ball snapped and after the ball snapped, you get spread too thin and you're not fundamentally great at anything. And then I think if then you have to make your choice. If you want to live and die in one or two formations, well then your volume has to come post snap where you're carrying quite a bit of of play and play families and play concepts. The offense I ran that I preferred was I carried my volume on the front end. I was going to make you, you know, think a whole bunch and prepare for formations and shifts and trades and double change of strength and all kinds of stuff. But then I was really just going to end up running a handful of plays. So, and and I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying there's a million, several ways to do it. And you have to make a decision on which way you're going to do it. So as a result, I end up being able to run power counter counter tray against this tight front all those different ways I can motion to all of it. I can get into one back and run the quarterback to do it. And it's clean, it's consistent, it's built in, it's hidden. Uh, And it's, and it really gives me schematically the best answer. So gap game wise for interior runs, I think that's, you know, that's what we lived in. That's what, it was awesome. And the other thing I should say is I said, we've been going against this stuff for probably five years now. And I used to dread this, I wouldn't change I was doing it on the wrong end. I was trying to like add new plays and I I didn't have a clean, concise plan of attack. I'd try new stuff and that always goes bad. You know, whenever you're getting done at the end of a season, you look at your cutups, you've added something and you run eight snaps of it on the whole year. I guarantee none of those things went for more than six, four or five, six yards. You know, they weren't, you wish you'd put reps into something that you'd done better as opposed to something new. So, I really used to dread going against this because I didn't have a, I had too diversified of an answer against it. And once I really cleaned up that, now I pray to God, I see this front. You know, I used to, you know, I, I, you draw this front. Now you're okay. I've got a great proven plan that everyone understands that we can do, that I can mass some things. So I it really, my process or thought process, I guess, changed over the course of attacking it. and I really found into something I like, which really helped me gauge, the whole offense against other things. So that's the whole that's the gap stuff. Now, here's the other part and I'm going to try to explain this as clean as I can. When it comes to the inside zone game, you have to make you need to be able to run it two ways. Okay? So I'm going again I'm going to go back and again talk about a 3 man surface. So if you use the 5 alignment plus the the extra guy, whether it's a hard tight end, soft tight end, or heavy tackle. Doesn't matter. You have a three man surface on one side of the line of scrimmage. Okay? If you there's two ways to run inside zone. You know, you got six guys on offense, you got seven guys on defense. So you have to account for the seventh guy somehow. So the two ways to run inside zone versus the tight front is let's start by saying We're going to run it to the three-man surface. Well, if that's the case, you want all your calls building off of the center, blocking the nose. So the center would block the nose. The guards have the two inside backers. The tackles have the DNs. And your third-man surface has the outside backer, which means the opposite outside backer. You have to control. You can control him with an RPO. You can control him by formation, detaching two or three or you can control him with scheme by adding another, you know, a second tight end, a fullback, whatever, and blocking that guy. But that screws up all their run fits because all of those double teams, all of the, the climb up to level two is a much more vertical push at the downhills. I mean, it's closer to old school veer than anything else. And it's really easy for the center because if you're listening to this right now, you're an O-line guy. you're going, what the hell am I going to leave the center alone on a zero nose for? That's never going to work. My center is not very good. It doesn't matter because that guy's the run key for the back. So when your back is chasing play side leg of the center, he's going to press heel line of the O line before he makes his cut. And the center is blocking the nose, who is the read key. So the center, he can get his ass kicked however which way he wants to. All he has to do is lock on Chase's hand, and that's going to dictate to the back which way the ball is going to flow. So it makes life really hard on those interior lineman linebackers to try to assume where the ball is going to go. Now, the other way to run your inside zone would be the exact opposite. Or now you still get your three-man surface, but you're going to run it away. Now, if you do that, you're obviously short a hat. So now your center is going to work to the call side inside backer. And you see that this is a very, very common way a lot of people do it. So now your call side guard and tackle have the DN and outside backer. Your centers are really working with the backside guard, handling the nose to the call side inside. Your tackle and your guy in the third spot are handling the DN to the call side or the backside inside, which then leaves the outside backer on the backside. So, again, control him one of three ways. RPO off the guy, use a motion or detach a receiver set to, to hold the guy or widen the guy, or add somebody into the box and block him. But at that point in time, now all your double teams, all your alignment are working forward. So you've really got to coach your back up really hard, uh, making sure he's pressing heel line to get those backers to gap out front side, knowing that that thing is going to bend back and behind. So I think when you, and really the only other thing that's, I think really good against it, and I, and I really only like it from a boundary. So this is really the only other thing I add in is dart, Um, it's really good from a boundary and I'll talk about this in a minute, but most 30 teams will default, you know, either through their own system or a call, they will default and pressure from the boundary, which means you're going to get the D line is going to expand to the field. So if you can be on a hash and call dart to the field, that makes life really easy on the call side tackle, because that guy's going to expand into the C gap on his own. You can lock on and run him and get a lot of mileage out of that thing. And I think what you do, and I always paired that with like dart read, where we would read the call side inside backer instead of power read that week to give give ourselves some flexibility. So I really lived in power counter, counter trade to a three-man surface, inside zone to a three-man surface, inside zone to a two-man surface, and dart. And then being able to have a dart read off of it, and then Q runs off of all the other stuff. And if you, you add all that stuff up, theres I mean, it ends up being a lot of different things that you can run. I mean, there's 45 run calls in a game right there really, really easily. Um, you know, in our back last year, you know, he's not a very fast guy, but we just – we slaughtered 30 teams doing – having this really concise plan over the last three years. Uh, you know, he ran for over 200 yards and five touchdowns in every single time. We saw that 30 front six times last year. it was a huge part of our success was uh you know you match up and then you think about it you then reverse engineer it well why was that invented and they saw zero snaps of 10 personnel for me they saw zero snaps of inside gun you know inside gun run to a two-man surface and it was you know a much more physical downhill fit so then we became the anomaly for what they saw during the course of the season um it wasn't a great matchup personnel wise for those guys. Cause I think if you can get like 21 or 12, do some unbalanced, do some about like numeric unbalanced four by nuns, five by nuns, uh, do some tackle over unbalanced, you know, those heavy formations, you really end up having a really clean, concise plan of attack in the run game for those things. That's a great personnel matchup. And, uh, Enough run variety where they can't go to the side. You know they can't come to the side and say, "Well, they're only running inside zone like this," so we have to fit it like that because we can run it both ways. So uh, I think being able to carry those, it's a really easy deal. You just have your your center just has to really know in the inside zone game. Are we running, excuse me, running to a two man surface or to a three man surface? And the gap game it doesn't matter because I'm not going to run any runs in the gap run game to a two man surface.
0: And you're really looking to. To get downhill on that, and I would say your your back's really looking to hit either a gap. Is that correct? You're not looking to bend this all the way back. You want him downhill now.
1: So on all the gap stuff, he, it, that almost always hits in the normal track because you get so much movement on the fore eye to the backside backer. So the gap stuff always hits. Uh, don't think of it as a gap necessarily as an align as a landmark on the field it will almost always hit right over the call side guards original alignment the inside zone stuff if it is working to if i'm running it to the three-man surface like i talked about at first that really can go anywhere from b to b i mean that's a realist that's a realistic uh, expectation uh, and then when you're working to the two-man surface or calling it to the two-man surface that's going to have to go anywhere from front side a to backside C
0: got it looking at uh, some of that movement I know you talked about um, calling the the dart a certain way and getting that that uh, defensive end that 4i or four you know wherever he might be to play out to the C gap becomes easier for your offensive tackle to just take them out there how much do you have to coach those guys up as far as the patience and seeing that movement, the patience, and being able to collect those things. And, uh, like you said before, essentially take those guys where they want to go.
1: Yeah, there's really two things you have to coach them up on, really hard, in my opinion. One is any kind of pre snap movement indicator. So, like most, you know, it's getting harder now. It used to be so easy. You didn't think five years ago, man, it was, man, hey, a safety rolled that way. <laughs> Here comes the four or five man pressure from that side, and they're replacing him. And they're going to run like, you know, that fire zone behind it. And it was, I mean, a blind person could have done it, dialing that stuff up. But now with everybody playing quarters, it has become much more difficult to pre-snap diagnose where a pressure is going to come from. So as a result on offense, you really have to have kind of a a more encompassing plan or, or at least check and balance to to get yourself into into a good place. So I think if there's any pre-snap indicator, it might be, you know, some of those D linemen like to give stuff away with which hand they put on the ground or, you know, maybe creep it up with an alignment, something like that. But safety certainly aren't the, the only answer anymore. And then the second piece is you have to teach your linemen that, uh, what's the best way to say this? Never value speed over position, okay? Or leverage, I should say. So. It, you know, one of the biggest things is because those guards are uncovered. The hardest thing to fight at first, if you're not very proactive as a coordinator, you'll get buried for this. But those guys are uncovered, and they want to climb and get, you know, get to level two as fast as they can. Or you know, an offensive tackle who is covered, he wants to try to engage in contact right away. And there's there's a ton of problems with that. So number one, for those guys that are covered, those tackles, the center, is you have to be able to make your feet move, but not go anywhere. You have to keep your feet going. It's no different than if you're, you know, doing a foot fire and you're trying to do a reactive speed drill where you're trying to, you know, coach points this direction. Then I move. That's really what the rep is. So I don't want to be gaining ground vertically up the field. I got to take steps and not go anywhere um, and let that guy dictate the movement. And then I can lock on chase hands and use his own momentums against him the second piece for those guys that are uncovered is, man, you've got to make sure you're pausing the tape a whole bunch to show them. I think blocking a guy is the hardest thing to do in all of sports. Okay. I will, I will argue that I will die on that Hill. It is hard to block people. So if you've got guys that climb to level two really fast against the 30, pause the tape, there's a pretty good chance if you're running inside zone and those guards climb up fast or the uncovered guy climbs up fast and you pause the tape on contact, you're not going to be blocking that guy in three tenths of a second, and most of the time the back is still about eight yards behind you. So you need to slow that slow, slow it down so that you're making contact when that when the back is on your heels, so that that defender is truly conflicted. I can either prioritize engaging the block, which means I'm not going to be able to arm tackle anybody, or if I try to arm you know if I try to engage the back, the lineman should just completely run me over. So you but if you don't sync that up like a domino effect or a chain of events, uh, you're in, you know, that that makes life on you really, really hard. So the timing pieces of those two things is getting into a guy early against a 30 has very, very little application to success, in my opinion.
0: Coach, thinking of the backside tackle on this and some of his techniques and the things you need to prepare him for, you know whether it's to to get that guy cut off or to to gap hinge and make sure that we seal the b gap. what kind of work do you feel you have to to really get him prepared for uh, going into a week seeing the tight front?
1: Well, it was it used to be brutal. <laughs> it used to be almost impossible because he was having to ride down, like you said, on the seal hinge and and ride in the gap stuff and ride that guy. It could have been any three defenders. and I think making that that was really, really difficult on those tackles was, man, it could be the inside backer pressuring through the A. It could be the D end spiking down. It could be the outside backer coming off the edge or looping inside the end. Like, he had a lot of variables that could happen to him, which that happening is play. His, his feet are slowing down. You know, if his head is moving, his feet aren't. So by adding the third, three-man surface on the front side, your center is coming back to the D end. Think of it like this. He's coming back to the A gap. Now, the center might have one or two guys that could do it, but that's pretty easy, and that's a low-maintenance block. That's a very inexpensive block. So the tackle really can just – he can be very aggressive, locking on with his inside hand at the end, riding that thing to the center, and then hinging back on whatever appears. So the gap stuff's really easy. I guess the biggest coaching point for those tackles is knowing whether or not they're a field tackle or boundary tackle. You know, if they're buried into the boundary – that the, the the style of play they're going to see out of that end and you know the b and c gap centers is totally different than uh a field side tackle with those same two people so we try to always do a bunch where we teach our tackle to read triangles you know and it's no different than anybody else read the first guy over me and read the level two guys inside me outside me and i have a pretty decent idea of what's going to happen uh based on some of those guys pre-snap, you know, we always talk about knowing the end, know the end of the movie from the preview. See, gather as much information as you can from the trailer that they're going to show you with their alignment so I know how this thing's going to end.
0: Coach, you also mentioned the dart read, that you like dart read over power read. I know uh, power read was something I'd really like to use. Um, We would make sure, you know, to not get tied into um, personnel as much. And our guys would, you know, say, well, that's the end. We usually read the end. No, we're reading the, you know, the defender outside of that. And I still liked using that three man surface that you talked about, um, to be able to get our read up there near the line of scrimmage to make it a little bit easier for that. But power read was always good for us. You mentioned you like dart read a little bit better. Talk us through, uh, the, the variation of the dart read and what about it you like a little bit more.
1: Yeah, but, you know, the power read stuff's always good. It's a great play family and great play series, and there's a ton of good coordinators that are calling that stuff against 30 teams that are having a ton of success. I am saying that strictly from a preference standpoint of my own. So I'm not not by any means saying I'm right, but uh, you know, the power read I didn't I didn't like as much because uh, one is it still locked me into having to run the ball to a three man surface a lot, um, and then two is I, I didn't love who you were reading. You know, if it's the outside guy the outside backer, there, there's issues with that and limitations because of the formation. And if it's the inside one, you know, you're really changing what your your guard and, and quarterback are going to be able to do. So what I ended up marrying our run game with was the dart stuff to dart read. So we would read the call side inside backer. Uh, and so the 5-0 linemen were going to always run dart no matter what, Q dart, no matter what, hell or high water. And then what that allowed me to do from a formation standpoint is get in a whole gamut of stuff. Because now I can add a third guy in as a tight end or a hard tight end or a soft tight end. He's going to block the force defender. I can get guys out there detached and have a true two-man surface. And we can block on the perimeter outside in. Uh, I can bring a guy in motion. I can run it from a static backfield. It just gave me a lot more versatility to get the ball on the edge. And then again, it, you know, especially when, and it gave me options to, to call it boundary or field. And I think that those things helped you out a ton. And it really put that inside backer in a tough spot where if you really wanted to try to vacate because you got good leverage or unbalanced or whatever, and he vacated, well, now you have a really easy, clear running path for the quarterback to be able to go up and through so it gave me gave, gave, gave me gave me some more formation flexibility and i thought it would have made the the runs for the quarterback much easier
0: yeah and and on the f- the front side of that so you uh, know i've seen some of your film you guys were using an on the ball tight end quite a bit right was that would that be something you oh, yeah. in this
1: yeah for sure i mean and and you can do the dart stuff you can do it either way but the gas stuff it's 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 getting in there no matter what
0: so with with the dart um Reed, walk our listeners through since you know we don't have any diagrams here in uh in an audio format, but walk us through uh your your setup um you know formationally, and just talk us right down the line in in what we're looking for with each uh player's sure. assignment
1: I'll, I'll I'll talk about the dart piece first. And then I'll talk about the the fly, the jet part of it or the fly sweep part of it first. So the dart part's very simple. I really prefer it from, uh, from a hash to the field. Like I said, you're going to get the expansion. So your call side tackle, I'm going to start right to left, like we're running dart, right? Call side tackle is man on the DN. The reason it's better from a boundary is more, or to the field from a boundary is most people are boundary pressure teams, So that guy will expand and become the, the clean C gap defender, making the outside back or the D gap defender. So, Call side tackle is man on the DN. Your call side guard and center are in a vertical double on the nose to the backside backer. And it's very important that you use some kind of term or coaching point that that guard has to understand that there's lateral movement in the backfield behind him. So that backside backer is going to flow completely different than a downhill, you know, A or B gap track gap play. So they're in a vertical guard, call side guard and center, are vertical double the nose to the backside backer. Your guard is going back on the B gap defender, which is nine times out of 10, the, the four eye. And the backside tackle is pulling up for the inside backer and all those same coaching points. You want to talk, teach him about depth on his first open pull, And then he really doesn't have to run very far. So if he's moving to the right, he wants to make contact with his right shoulder and he's only concerned with the Q run. So if that inside backer goes screaming out of there, he will never move his nose past 12 o'clock on the field, which means if he's screaming out of there to go play the fly sweep, the tackle, once he hits 12 o'clock, will continue on that track and be able to move up to safety level and check backside safety back to you know 11 or 10 o'clock. His, his nose will never move to one or two to make that block. Then well, the key is to the whole thing, whether you're going to run it uh, with a static backfield on a fly sweep, if you're going to run a static backfield, uh, handoff, or you bring a guy in fly sweep motion, you, and again, this is my own opinion. There's one guy that can screw the whole perimeter play up. And it's the hang player, the nine tech, the outside back, or whatever you want to call him, because that guy can spike very easily. So to me, in my opinion, you have to have someone from the box or the backfield account for that guy. And I think the backfield's even better. So a soft tight end or lead the tail back up, but that person has to account for the outside backer because that's spring the play lateral. So I think it, one of the things that's really important is if you can match that up really well, personnel wise, that's a great deal. So for me, if I'm using a tight end or a fullback, you know, I've, I've, you know, we were really lucky. We recruited some big, Our fullback type guys were and tight ends or those those soft tight ends for backs were 245 to 260 pounds for me, matched up versus basically a nickel safety. So we were able to get those guys. That block's got to be made at the line of scrimmage or beyond, and you've got to get your hat through his outside thigh. And that will spring the ball to the edge. And then numbers-wise, that will leave you with your receivers blocking safeties and corners which is safer and schematically it's, it's, it's a better answer. And it's a better matchup that those guys are blocking the people that they should be able to block as opposed to those outside backers, which are probably better, you know, box defenders and inside run, you know, run guys. So if you lined up in 10 personnel, two by two, I would bring the slot, the weak side slot in motion for the, for the fly sweep part of it. So that would match my outside receivers on corner and safety put my back on the outside backer, the interior runs dart, and the quarterback is reading the call side inside backer. Um, If I did it out of a different formation, like a, uh, like a, you know, what I call flex or, you know, the the two by one everybody in college football uses the two receivers, the one side, one receiver to the other and two backs. Um, You know, you run it strong, you have your same matchups. So you can hand the ball to your back. Now your sniffer guy is accounting for the outside backer and it matches your two receivers up versus their two DBs. Um, And then one of the things I like to do, you know, I'll bring my single receiver in motion and which will then get me the sniffer, the outside receivers to handle the outside backer and two DBs plus my tailback for any leakage or the backside safety. And that gets me an extra hat. So you can get a ton of, like I said, just a lot of mileage out of, Few things that make life on those guys really difficult to defend. Now, I will say this each one of these series we have a you know one play action pass that marries together with it. So, if you're you know running your your dart, your dart uh jet stuff, or you're running your power stuff, or you're running your inside zone, there's one support defender that all that stuff is going to put in a bind. I will always carry a play action pass that I will go after and attack that one guy. So once, you know, I want to call the run seven, eight times, he might come down and, you know, thump you on one, but that's going to come tell me to trigger the play action just, and even if we don't hit it, it backs the guy off. And then I restart that cycle. You know, you're hitting a reset button on your next six to eight carries to keep that guy soft. Cause now he knows you're willing to pull the trigger.
0: Yeah, uh, a couple things there. First, just backing up, and I think this is a very important point. And I put together, I had written a book, uh, a digital book on, uh, you know, the power read play, and I, I am, one hundred percent with you. You have to have some kind of word that your line knows that, um, you know, whether it's dot read or power read that there's a difference in the play because the demeanor of the defense changes. When you're running, Correct. you know, you're straight downhill play, they're they're also playing downhill and all the angles start to change, all the ways they fit and react start to change. And I think it's very important just with a a tag word that um not just for your your uh skill players that they know the play that but also your line because it's not the exact same scheme. I think people make that mistake all the time and and I did early on saying oh well we run you know one back power so power read that's easy well yeah not exactly you're going <laughs> to you're going to have to school that up a little bit and the demeanor of the defense is the biggest thing you have to understand that
1: absolutely you know the, the biggest thing is like uh it's no different like if you call power on third and an inch at the 4 yard line going in it's different than power on second and 15 at your own 20 like they're going to react the demeanor But the other thing I always talk about a bunch is just level two will almost always mirror your backfield, whatever, whoever the quarterback is handing the ball to that will be, that action will be mirrored by the level two defenders on defense. So whether it's lateral and you're putting the ball by the numbers or it's a vertical downhill attack.
0: That's exactly it. And it changed the, Again how you talked about where that guy is putting his eyes as he's pulling it, it just changes all of it because he he's normally expecting to come up and kick that guy out I and mean, that guy he's gonna disappear and you don't you don't want him standing in the middle looking for somebody and having the guy running right into him you you want that block and I mean you can get him downfield now you're you're in a really good situation when he gets to block a little guy
1: yeah, now listen here. The other thing too is this is all great me saying all this stuff. Don't think for a second you can not put on my my old tape and some of those pullers aren't going to chase guys out of the box. Oh like,
0: yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: like they're brain dead animals. Exactly. So that, that that's going to happen. You just have to try to make it happen less and less. So certainly that's a you know, one you get one one really clean rep for every 3 that get muddied. and those guys have to just be quick with their uh so I don't I don't I don't have that figured out by any means. <laughs> Um,
0: All talk. Well, it is all talk. (laughs) It it comes down to how you practice it and teach your players, certainly. Um, You mentioned the play action, and I I love the play action off of these types of plays because it's really, in my mind, very simplistic and usually, as you mentioned, wide open for the quarterback to see where that that throwing lane is and uh, usually is a a nice chunk of yardage, exactly what you said, is going to get them out of uh, their – their mentality of getting after the run as hard as they may have shown previously. So uh, just talk us through what, what you like to do play action wise and primarily where you're trying to attack.
1: Well, anything that you can do against quarters, because that's you see so much now, if you can get four out to a side, anything that you draw up should work. So I don't, you know, I'm not a big, like grab a marker and argue with guys. Don't let you go blue in the face, but just, You know, one of the things that's really easy is I've talked a whole bunch about, uh, you know, running your your outside stuff to two receivers, and those guys go block the corner, you block the safety, and you have somebody from the backfield go block the force defender. So obviously it would make very much sense if you're seeing quarters, and a play that marries up to that is you just go double post with some kind of flood concept. So you have your pusher out by number one that you know a really skinny tall post not a vertical but just he's pushing through the inside shoulder of the corner number two is pushing through the inside shoulder of the safety and there those guys' jobs are really to run them all out of there and then you have your backfield uh, component that's going to the force defender you can trail that guy or wheel that guy you can have him run a sail route all different kinds of things and then whoever that was getting the, the you know the mesh action becomes your flat uh Becomes your flat route, so you have a couple different options there. That in reality, you probably just need those two. You know, I don't know how many other you know cool different ways you can run it, but you just need those two. Now, one thing I changed, and I think a lot of people make this mistake, uh, and I have changed this, and it, it has worked a lot better, was the sell by the mesh. Okay, so everybody's like, this is the least thought about part of the entire route, and in my opinion, is the most important part. So whoever is taking the backfield fake from the quarterback. For some reason, everyone swings that guy. And that doesn't make any sense in my head. Because if you were actually handing that guy the ball, what do you do? He wouldn't swing. He would turn up to try to gain yards. Mm -hmm. So we actually teach that as like an arrow route. So whoever the faking back is goes through the mesh and he turns vertical hard, holds the ghost football in his outside hand, and he turns vertical hard. Until he hits the line of scrimmage, so he's running as if he had the ball, turning up the same way. Everything it looks the same it holds everybody so much longer. Then, when he, once he hits the line of scrimmage, sw- somewhere between line of scrimmage and three yards down the field, he then tapers it off, looks over his outside shoulder, flattens out, and, and stretches to the numbers as hard as he can. But boy, that—if you—he you know, he doesn't ever get the ball thrown to him very much, maybe twice a season. But I'm telling you from the mesh. To the time he hits the line of scrimmage, that cell is what gets the route open. You can have some really bad players running those routes against really good players, and it will get open if that cell and, and by the backfield mesh is really critical. So, if that guy widens and, and you know, loses ground because he's trying to swing, you know that is an immediate indicator to those guys playing defense. This is a pass play, and start turning around and getting depth. But the longer he can sell a ghost ball in his hand and Turning so that movement from mesh to line of scrimmage looks identical to if you handed it whether you didn't. That to me is the sell to the whole thing. And I, you know, for whatever reason, everybody swings the guy on the pass play, but
0: yeah, I like that's that. not what
1: you're trying to do. And you're, and you're reading it top to bottom anyway, you right? Know? So you got plenty of time,
0: Coach. You mentioned there were two parts to this, and and to remind you. Of the in game, so we uh, we talked about all the game plan. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Now we're looking in game. What are the keys for you there?
1: Okay, so I'm going to carry that game plan against everybody. Like I just like it, it, it's good. Okay, it's a sound good game plan. The key to the whole thing is once the game starts, there's a couple things I look for in the game because how people defend you is going to be different than how they defended people on tape. And for a lot of reasons, it might be, maybe your quarterback can run. Maybe he can't, maybe you're an offset gun. Maybe you're in pistol. Maybe you motion a ton. Maybe you don't. Uh, Maybe some of their players got hurt during that week in practice or aren't clear for the game. There's a lot of reasons, you know, to me, if you expect them to just go, Hey, what they showed on film is exactly what they're going to do against us. You're an insane person because that's never the case. You know, there's always some kind of new wrinkle. Um, so once you get into a game, okay, I don't ever script plays and I don't, I think, I think that's just, I don't know. I don't understand that. You know, you script out all your plays, like they're going to gain yards. What if there's a penalty? What if there's an injury? What if there's an incompletion or a sack or a fumble or whatever? Then you're then okay. Well then you get off the script. Well then you're not scripting plays. What are you, what are you doing it for? So I never understood that, but that's a whole nother podcast. I can that's complain right. about that. But anyway, <laughs> the, uh, what I will do is there's a couple telltale formations I will always get in really early in the game because I will find out what they're, that to me, they're going to show their hand before they want to. So the ones that I'm going to get into is I'm going to use some kind of fly sweep motion to see what their answer is to that, if they're going to, how they're going to adjust by, are they going to widen the flat defender, are they going to roll the safety down, are they checking to a certain coverage, something like that. I think that's really big. I'll FIB or formation in the boundary and I'll do it with two and I'll do it with three. So I'll do it out of I'll formation in the boundary out of two back and I'll formation out of the boundary out of one back and then put trips into the boundary yeah. and see what their answer is to that. And then the other one is I will get in some type of unbalanced early because I will find I need to find out from these guys with their personnel, are they defending formations or are they defending field and boundary? Uh, I think the sooner you can learn that in a game, that will really help your plan of attack as far as how you want to uh, how you want to get after these guys the rest of the way out. And they're different, you know what I mean? Some guys will roll the safety over and defend the formation of the boundary, and then you gotta have your built-in answers. Some guys will hey these guys will always play to the field and these guys always play to the boundary and then you have to limit your calls to make sure you're winning the stuff that you want at the people you want into the scheme you want and I think that's the most important pieces man as it goes people first personnel first always then scheme so I, I've talked about that a bunch before so like a 30 when you play that tight front man it's not like they just line up a trillion different ways you can watch you know it's going to be a seven-man box and two high safeties a lot so I can watch run cut-ups Uh, You know, games of four or more out of all my three by ones and two by twos and to the field and to the boundary. I'll never watch a full game. I want to find that stuff out. And man, guys who can't defend certain things stick out like a sore thumb. So they, uh, you know, you can find out people who don't fit things really well or can't tackle very well or aren't very physical or if there's a coordinator who gets himself into a bunch of easy calls. Like I always tell this story and it's super embarrassing, but I'll tell it because I'm an idiot. So, been, when I became a head coach, I had a call from the field. And it took me like nine games into my first year to realize that I kept calling plays toward my own sideline, So I could see what was happening. I had spent six years or whatever it was in the box. And I got to the field and I wanted to call. I just, I caught myself and I thought I was doing it in a, in a scrimmage. I felt myself do it in the game. And I went back and I watched one of the games. And it sure as can be, the uh, I, I was doing that. So, like, even if you think you've got everything ironed out and even if you think you've got all the answers to everything, man, there is a human element that when the bullets fly, you revert back to what you know or you have some kind of, you know, Linus from the Charlie Brown security blanket that everybody kind of has. And I try to, you try to find that. And that was, I mean, that was my biggest one by far. Now I'm sure I've got other ones, but everybody, yeah, everybody can get into that. You know, like one thing I'll tell, I, you know, I I say this too. And uh, so the way my signal system worked is the I signaled everything to all 11 guys. And I'm going to say this, and it sounds hokey, and it was a very, very valuable tool for us was, you know, our signal system was really simple. That was my whole thing. I wanted every call to be maybe two, three signals. So what we would do is during the first series of a game, I'd have somebody look over and see what the defensive coordinator, whoever was signaling in the defense, what that guy looked like. So your linemen were able to get your signal in, you know, say two signals. You're talking about a second and a half it takes. Mm -hmm. Then they can pop their eyes over as they're walking up to the line of scrimmage and look at the guy signaling in the defense. 99% of all defensive guys signal in their base defense is one or two signals. That's it. Yeah. So if my all linemen was looking, you know, they get my call and they pop their eyes over and they see a one or two signal turn come in from the defense, I'm okay. I'm going to get their, whatever their base deal is, we're going to get that. If they look over and there's, you know, a seven signal thing coming in. <laughs> now we might not know what that is, but I know something's coming. So you're going to see my linemen squinch down at about four inch splits and prevent penetration. And we're going to be able to at least have an answer. So there's a lot of any nuances or tricks that don't show up on a board that you can get an advantage to, you know, I think are just those little things all are all are a huge help. And that's, you know, I'm a big believer in hidden yardage. And what I mean by that is not, spe- I mean nothing about a special team. Special teams, special teams the, the, the bag's out on that whole thing. You know what I mean? Like everybody gets how important special teams are. What I mean by hidden yardage is you look at like Alabama's and Yeah, I'm sure they got great players and really good coaches all stuff, and stuff. in the reason, but their success, an in, in the army is ju- exactly like this. Coach Munkin and Coach Davis here, the OC and uh, head coach and OC, they obsess over four-yard plays. I mean, I mean obsess over it. And I guarantee Saban's in the same way. So what I mean by that is. Most people, and I'm, I'm the most guilty of this, I go to the end of the year and I watch my cutups and I sort them longest to shortest by gain first. I watch all my long runs and I sit there and pat myself on the back and, you know, boy, you're really good. And the majority of those long ones are something either bad happened on defense or one of your kids bailed you out and made a great play. Where you need to start is like your eight-yard runs to your two-yard runs, okay? And what I mean by that is like if you run inside zone for five yards a crack, against everybody well when you play really good teams they've figured out a way to keep you to three when you defend everybody in an inside zone at two yards and an army lines up and runs it for four they're twice as good at you against all that stuff than everybody else and when you factor that in over 70 to 85 plays in three hours of the game that's where all the hidden yardage is the really good teams find ways to make five yard plays seven yard plays and three yard plays five yard plays and one yard plays three yard plays and it's the least sexy thing that no one talks about if you can line up and do that that is in my opinion the the key to the castle with the whole thing so it's been nice for me to get out here at army and see that that, i really kind of figured that out about the last year and a half and really started to emphasize that program wide and to get here and see where there's such an emphasis on that on both sides of the ball and you live and die within four yard gains man that's the best pretty good deal
0: yeah, I agree with you. Sometimes we get caught up in seeing all those huge statistics, but uh, you know that four-yard gain and being efficient like that, <laughs> down after down, is more valuable than that play was. You know, thirty percent efficient, uh, but but you know, hit all the big plays. So,
1: yeah, I'm, the, I'm I'm telling you right now, I am the worst in the country at that. Like just watching a. Oh, look at that. Look at that guy made 14 guys miss and made a good play. And now look how smart I am. (laughs) I was the worst at that, but I'm slowly trying to get it all figured out.
0: Well, I mean, those, those great players that you recruit make you a better coach somehow too. Yeah, boy. It turns
1: out that's what really matters a whole bunch (laughs) is, you know, we I always laugh about that. I talk about bowl season. Everybody runs inside zone and ends up blocking it the same way. It's like, like, I guess here's the best way I can explain my staff is when I was a head coach, and this is going to make every special teams coordinator skin crawl. But here's here's in my opinion, here's how kickoff return works across all of football from the NFL to junior high. 10 people don't block anybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay? The guy who caught the kick is either good enough to make the first guy miss and get 5 more yards or he isn't. So you can put as much time into kickoff return as you want. In my opinion, you can put hours and hours and hours. You got ten guys who aren't going to block anybody. And if that first guy doesn't make someone miss, you average seventeen yards of return, you're not very good. Or that guy makes one guy miss, picks up a couple extra yards, and you're at 22, 23 yards of return, and you're near the top of your league. You're one of the best there is. Every once in a while you break a long one or whatever, but for the most part, that's that's what happens on kick return. Somebody somebody's gonna to have to sell me different.
0: No, that that's about that's it. Sorry. I had I had two guys <laughs> when I was at BW. One was the Division one national champion his senior year in, in the hundred, or Division three uh, national champion his senior year in the hundred, and the other other guy was uh, just a special guy. And as freshmen, uh, those guys were returning kicks against everybody. And by the time they were seniors, you know how many times they were touching the ball on kick return. Like only only if the kicker really screwed up and kicked it to him. Like we couldn't get those guys the ball anymore. I mean, you know, and it, it funny how the, the scheme was just not as effective when those guys didn't have the ball.
1: Yeah, that's just how it goes. You know, you get to bowl game season, everybody blocks inside zone the same way. And, yep. boy, your back either makes a guy miss and you're averaging six yards a carry or he doesn't. You're, you know, I don't want to trivialize the whole thing. But there's some of that to coaching that, you you know, don't over-coach
0: me. Well, you know, you did say something that, that sparked a memory uh, a few minutes back. Uh, you said, man, I was an idiot. I kept doing this. But, you know, according to what I saw in your presentation at AFCA, that, that goes against your philosophy. You had probably one of the best slides I've ever seen or most interesting slides I've ever seen in a coach's clinic. You had a picture of Dwight Schrute, and the caption was, whenever oh, yeah. I'm about to do something, I think would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. <laughs> yeah, so that must have truth. been before you implemented that.
1: <laughs> well, I didn't know I was doing it, but I didn't I didn't really ask myself, but yeah, absolutely, you know the reason that slide got brought up was I'm the same as every other offensive guy. you know you once in a while you think you gotta hey, here's a new play. I'm gonna add this new play in. Well, before I've learned now, I'm smart enough to know I'm not very smart. And I've learned to go watch people, you know, and I think the example I used at the convention was if there was a new, you know, new RPO or new run game thing I wanted to do, before I added it now, I'll go watch the old Chip Kelly stuff and I'll watch Scott Frost and I'll watch Lincoln Riley and I'll watch Gus Malzahn. And if those four guys aren't doing it, I'm getting ready to do something dumb because (laughs) those guys have more experience than me, they're smarter than me, and they have infinitely more resources than me. So there's no way I found I figured something out that those guys hadn't. So uh, then I don't have that plan and go back to what I was doing that was working and go from there. So that's really uh, I think I I try to. I'm like everybody else, you know. I live and die with the office on Netflix and have watched it (laughs) 50 times through. So you you always learn something new from Michael Scott and Dwight.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Well, Matt, it's it was great to uh, talk with you and and hear the way that you attack the tight front. And I know you mentioned uh, you'd uh, send along one of your presentations. We could put up on our show notes here as well.
1: Yep, hopefully, it'll it, it really clean, clear diagrams of everything that I'll be able to. Uh, if it doesn't make sense the way I was explaining it, it'll you'll be able to see really clean, clear pictures of how it just uh, delineates the way we attack it. But I can't thank you enough for having me on. Like I said, I don't have any of the answers. I just want to be able to share in the coaching profession what's what we've had some success doing and hopefully what this what the part that's the best about doing these things is I get uh DMs and texts and phone calls and emails from people that hear it and listen to it and then share some more of their ideas and I end up getting better as a result because I, I you know they have a new spin on things or something that they can add. So I just I think that's so critical in our profession and such a unique thing that, you know, even though we're competing against each other we're able to to you know, someone in Oregon can get a hold of a guy in Texas, and can get a guy a hold of a guy in New York, and then all of a sudden they're talking football together. I just love that.
0: Yeah, that's the best part, and you do a great job on Twitter. Share your uh, Twitter handle for our listeners.
1: It's just at drink old coach. and my last name is spelled uh, like drinking all back to back. D R I N K A L L coach. So you can track me down. I'm the ugly guy. <laughs>
0: Well, Matt, uh, I always enjoy what you're doing, seeing you on Twitter, hearing you speak here. Uh, I'm glad you're sharing some things in some articles on our uh, website, blogs. blogs.usafootball.com as well. Keep up the great work, keep helping the game, and best of luck to you and Army in 2019.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you again for listening to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. Please, if you are enjoying the podcast, head over to iTunes or Spotify and click five-star for rate. If you have a minute, write a review. It really helps the podcast. Check out our new home for the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. That's at coachandcoordinator.com and follow me on Twitter at Coach K. Grabowski.